Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 19 of Attitude Check. Today we're excited to have Connor Shane as a guest. But before we jump into the episode, Brent, tell me something new. Well, John Mark, there was a concept that was really intriguing to me, and it was quality of questions lead to quality of life. So I thought that was really interesting because people really undervalue the opportunity you have when you can question things and when you can ask people questions. And I think that's the value of education and mentorship and just lifelong learning. So how have you applied that to your life? Honestly, so far, I really haven't besides just thinking about it. Um, it really struck a chord, though, when I thought about the implications for this podcast and me just talking to people in general. Um, I've heard a few different thoughts on questions, especially when it comes to people who work in sales, as far as people who ask the questions, people who ask the right questions, lead the conversation. So I think that leads to anything that you want to do in life, whether it's business, relationships, anything that has to do with people, is if you ask the right questions, you can better steer towards the outcome that you want. Not necessarily saying that you're manipulating people, but making sure that you're actually getting value and you're actually giving value by asking the right questions. I can definitely appreciate that. And asking questions is one way to show people that you care. And there's the old adage, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So that's why I enjoy asking questions. I enjoy listening to people and getting them talking about their lives and what's important to them. Absolutely. And I think that's a key part, just making sure that you're reaching out to people, asking the right questions, and making sure that at the end of the day, you're not just being a surface level person, you're actually being authentic and digging a little bit deeper. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Connor Shane. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community, effect change, and produce impact. I'm John Mark Radspinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check. We are so excited to have Connor Shane as a guest. Connor is the National Events Manager for USA Fencing. Awesome, thanks guys. Appreciate having me. So Connor, we're just going to open up with a little icebreaker question here like usual. So what I have for you today is if you had to describe yourself as an inanimate object, what would it be and why? Okay, don't make fun of me. Um, I'm going to say a windmill and let me, make, let me explain before somebody laughs. I think for two reasons. One, professionally, uh, it's very important to me to create sustainable models and sustainable frameworks. I think a windmill is pretty uh, explanatory of that. And then number two, I don't know. I, I love windmills. I think I have a very meditative personality. I think windmills perfect. That makes a lot more sense. When you first said windmill, <laughs> I was picturing those old-fashioned wooden ones you see on farms and things not, like not that. that but not that one. I'm assuming you're talking about the modern. Yeah, I don't thing. have enough rust for the first one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely. First time and probably the last time I'm going to hear someone call themselves a windmill, yeah, so hey. thanks for that. Well, that's not going to be the first thing you're going to hear today. <laughs> <laughs> so, Connor, tell us a little bit more about your story. How did you get to where you're at? Sure. So, uh, I've been involved in uh, world and Olympic sports pretty much my whole life. Uh, my parents owned a gymnastics school when I was a kid, um, pretty much before I was born, actually. And so, I grew up doing tons of sports. Gymnastics was my passion. So, I did that for about 14 years. Um, I got recruited for the Olympic Training Center when I was in middle school. Um, and so I was surrounded by these men's gymnasts who were training around us and training with us and, you know, these, these world-class Olympic athletes. And so that environment, that, uh, world environment, the world sports environment kind of just, uh, it definitely helped raise me. It helped shape me. It helped shape my personality, the things I care about. Uh, so that, that's 
kind of the growth into sports. Um, other than that, my parents were uh, very paramount in raising me, and so were my grandparents. They worked, you know, three jobs each uh, when I was going through school, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Um, so I learned to, you know, really value time with them when I had it, and then with people in general, uh, which really did translate to my current lifestyle. Um, I'm gone pretty much uh, almost 60% of the year uh, traveling. I think last year I clocked 59%, uh, about 114,000 miles on flights last year. Um, but I still maintain great relationships with friends. I try and make sure I spend as much time as possible and really value that that personal time and make it as powerful as possible, I guess. So, Connor, tell us a little bit more about the later years um, moving into high school and college and how you transitioned from having that athletic background in you know, gymnastics into more of your uh, professional career. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, after high school, actually, I had a choice of moving into um, collegiate gymnastics. That was... Uh, not really an option for me mentally. It was definitely an option for me uh, physically. It was uh, capable of doing it, but I just didn't really want to do it. I didn't think the lifestyle of an athlete was something that I wanted. Um, I was surrounded by high-performing athletes, some of the best athletes in the world, and their lifestyle wasn't what I wanted. So instead of trying to pick one of the few schools that had a men's gymnastics program, I actually went to Colorado State in uh, Fort Collins uh, and dropped everything, dropped all gymnastics sports. I coached a little bit when I was in college, uh, but I pretty much just stopped being a, uh, a high-performing athlete. Uh, I obviously used my my desire for athletic performances and events and really just active lifestyle. So I was involved in whitewater rafting. I do uh, mountain biking a lot. Uh, love off-terrain extreme snowboarding. That one is just one of my favorites. I, I absolutely love the winter winter years. Colorado is perfect for that. And then love tough mutters. Those ones are a blast. So really keeping that active lifestyle, but moving away from professional sports for uh, pretty much the rest of my life. So once I was in college, I moved forward with an engineering degree that I thought was a good idea. Uh, three years in, I <laughs> actually went to a career fair and talked to a, a 10 year engineer who was in the same field I was. Uh, he told me about his lifestyle and I, uh, I said, thank you, shook his hand, uh, walked out of the building, went to the registrar's office and changed my major to international studies um, <laughs> the day of. And so that was just not my lifestyle either. And so, uh, International studies is kind of how I graduated. Uh, I had a minor in French. That attested to maybe the pieces that uh, currently exist in my life, which is travel. Love travel. Love global travel. European culture is amazing to me. I love Asia, all of Asia. And then, yeah, after that, I got involved in Olympic sports. Uh, I had a wonderful opportunity in 2015 to volunteer in the Toronto Pan Am Games. So I flew my way out there. I was still a student, so I couldn't afford anything. Um, I actually couch surfed with a young gentleman for about two weeks. Uh, great friend of mine now, he still messages me. Uh, and I did that for about two weeks. He's from Sri Lanka, so he's a really cool dude. But he let me just crash on his couch for two weeks. I uh, made him some food. I honestly taught him how to do a backflip because I still coached gymnastics <laughs> at the time. And that was our trade-off. That was the exchange. And uh, then I, I met tons of contacts at the Olympic Committee who worked games operations. I thought games operations was the one I wanted to do, that Olympic game mentality of, of I want to organize the Olympic Games. I think that'd be so cool. So through that, I got an internship right out of college, uh, graduated, moved back to Colorado Springs where my family was, and uh, started working at the headquarter building downtown uh, doing Paralympic International Games. So again, met tons of people, tons of contacts, tons of mentors, uh, started learning really what it meant to be involved in that community and in that career and really that industry. Uh, sports, especially in Colorado Springs, Olympic sports is its own industry. They have their own rules, they have their own subsets, their own frameworks, their own models. Um, and then right after that, I had a, uh, 
actually a one-way ticket to Southeast Asia after my internship. I thought I wanted a break. Um, and a week before I left, I helped with a training uh, for USA Fencing. I was uh, certified to coach uh, True Colors. It's a personality exam. It's kind of like Myers-Briggs. And so my boss at the time asked me to come help, and it was a staff training, and so I did it. met the people at Fencing, and uh, she asked me if I wanted to apply for a job, so I did. Took the trip anyway. I was gone. I was in Southeast Asia. I did a phone interview while I was in Jakarta. I very vividly remember sitting in Hong Kong. I was at a restaurant just out on the patio, and I got the email that offered me the job, so I bought a ticket back. So I've been working with uh, Fencing for about two years now, uh, running our national circuit. So I run our national event circuit. Uh, it's about eight events a year that touch domestic soil. Uh, they're international events. We invite international countries in there, host about 30 countries per tournament. Uh, and I oversee all staffing and contracting uh, and budget for that one. Nice. So if you uh, hadn't got that email out on that patio, <laughs> would you have stayed in Hong Kong indefinitely? Or what was no, the plan there? I love Hong Kong, but there's a good chance I was just going to bounce around. I loved Southeast Asia, uh, and I probably would have hit every country in there within a year. And I'm honestly not sure if I'd be back right now. <laughs> wow. um, backtracking just a little bit, there's a lot of people in the younger generations or in that college age frame who go through a similar um, situation to where they have to decide, you know, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Um, you know, I'm studying this major, but I don't think I want to do it. Uh, but it seems like you hit that a little bit earlier on when you decided not to pursue, you know, actual athletics and gymnastics. So tell us a little bit more about that mind frame. Was it a hard thing to decide? And what did the people around you think, seeing as your parents have that very strong gymnastics background. The sports decision was the harder one. Moving away from gymnastics as an athlete, moving away from a high-performing athlete was the hardest one because I grew up through elementary school, middle school, and high school doing projects and you know the class presentations about being an Olympic athlete, about being a high-performing athlete. What do you want to be when you grow up? I said, hey, Olympic athlete. Um, and that was a reality for me. I was training at the Olympic Training Center. I was with the high-performing Olympic athletes. I was getting coached by national team coaches, by Olympic coaches. And that was a reality. So that decision, the one that basically shaped the majority of my uh, ethical code, my moral code, I moved away from. I felt like I moved away from. And it was really more that I knew I didn't want to do it. I knew the life of an athlete. They don't make a lot of money. They don't typically have a lot of uh, more powerful business skills or, um, you know, entrepreneurial skills. Some of them have to do it on their own. They really have to go above and beyond because they're training all the time. You know, especially Olympic athletes are training eight hours a day, nine hours a day. It's a full-time job. And unless you're sponsored, you're not making a lot of money. You're sometimes working at a coffee shop, you know, on the side. I know tons of athletes even now who are on the road to Tokyo who have jobs at restaurants, who have jobs at coffee shops because they're just trying to make extra money for them. So I, that was a hard decision. I felt like I was letting my parents down. I felt like I was letting really like the whole reason I existed down. Uh, but once I made the move, I realized that I could do whatever I wanted. You know, I almost grabbed a, a nihilist point of view, a neo-nihilist point of view, if you would, and kind of thought differently about the world. And I could do whatever I wanted. You know, I, if I wanted to change my path, I could change my path. If I wanted to do something else, if I wanted to learn something else, I could. And that made the second decision easier away from engineering. I knew I didn't want to do it, so I did it. I walked to the registrar's office, I changed it on site, and I made up the time on my extra classes. I crammed four years of college into five. It was awesome. Um, and then I moved on. <laughs> so speaking a little bit more towards the different athletes you've seen and that challenge of you know balancing being an Olympic athlete and you know, having kind of that future or financial situation set up, 
is there like a common mistake that you see these athletes making or is there something that you'd recommend um, you know just having a better perspective looking into the future and thinking about you know what am i going to do after my athletic career is done i mean i know it's not an easy balance because when you're in it when you're competing in the olympics you want to have that singular focus on winning that medal but what's something that people can take away from that athletic perspective? Think for themselves. If I'm giving advice to the athletes in general, and the same thing I've told a lot of my friends is make sure that they're making decisions for their own life because there are tons of people when stardom and fame and uh, athletic prowess hit who want to live vicariously through you, who want to make decisions in their best option, whether it's your parents, whether it's coworkers, whether it's colleagues, whether it's a mentor that you think was a mentor, but maybe they have their own their own goals for you and so number one make sure that your decisions are coming from you and nobody else obviously take advice but there are a lot of people out there who want to live through you and want to be part of your fame if you will um, whether it's phony people whether it's uh, you know people who just very honestly want to be attached to you and see you succeed but they don't actually understand what you want in life maybe an athlete isn't what you want maybe you want to be a baker maybe you want to own your own restaurant who cares just do it as best as you possibly can. And so if I'm giving advice to people who are looking at athletes, obviously high-performing athletes are unbelievable to look at. They are deified sometimes. They're amazing just to watch to to watch them move, whether it's a gymnast who's flying through the air, completely destroying all laws of physics, or whether it's basketball and you have somebody who's somehow 48 inches in the air, you know, slamming a ball into a hoop. It's just amazing to watch high-performing athletes. And so with that said, as a viewer, as a consumer of the entertainment that is their physical finesse, make sure that you are respecting their opinions. Make sure you're, you know, not taking some advice, uh, you know, from people who don't have that platform. You know, I know, for example, political opinions, you know, just because your favorite athlete follows this viewpoint doesn't mean you have to. That's called the herd morality, right? Believing in something that somebody else does just because they do just because you like them and so there are they are still people these athletes are people who have goals who have wants and a lot of them are financially struggling a good amount of people are financially struggling i'm not going to bring up the the women's <laughs> world cup differences between their finances that one's new or that one's old news to everybody but they are people who are struggling just as all of us are honestly i think that's awesome advice just because if you really look at athletes um, it, it's a very magnified viewpoint of what people face through usually their whole career you know 20 30 years but being an athlete you only have that smaller window to really accomplish what you want to and you really have to think about things on a sped up timeline so thank you for sharing that i think it's has a lot of applicable things that people can use when they're doing their decision making processes but i wanted to touch on something you mentioned to me uh, in one of our prior conversations, you said something along the lines of Colorado Springs is the Silicon Valley of um, athletics or something like that. Could you kind of dive into that? Because I thought it was really interesting. It is. Yeah, you were so close. It was sports management. Sports management. Silicon Valley of sports management. I truly believe that. it's uh, It exists as a almost a macrocosm of high-performing sports and global sports. So the beauty of the industry of Olympic sports of these federations is we exist on a global scale, but a lot of us are small businesses. Some NGBs, as we call them, it stands for National Governing Body, they exist with a couple employees sometimes. Some of the smaller NGBs only have two to three people who are working these federations. Uh, fencing, for example, we have 21, I believe, was our last count. 
uh, and we are, you know, pushing, a, we're our nonprofit 501c3, most of them are, almost all of them are, um, and we're pushing eight, nine million dollars a year. And not only that, but it's, it's a world small business. So it's a small business with a global reach. You're getting emails from international federations. The Senegalese Federation wants to do training programs on domestic soil, and you have to work through those relationships on site very quickly and create that kind of environment with a global reach. You're emailing across seas almost every single day to many, many different countries. So it's beautiful that almost all that's in Colorado Springs. There's 50 NGBs in the country, I believe was the last count, national governing bodies, federations, and 34 in Colorado Springs, just Colorado Springs itself. And you're talking uh, the building we share by ourselves has USA Volleyball, USA Archery, table tennis, and fencing, all just in one building. We rent together. Um, and that's the same for lots of other NGBs around. I know figure skating is over at the Broadmoor. Um, there's a sport house that kind of helps uh, with a lot of the martial arts. A lot of the martial arts NGBs are all in that building, and they don't work with each other. They just kind of help each other out. They learn from each other. They are still competing businesses. But Colorado Springs is, if you want sports management, apply for a job, and you are almost guaranteed to have to move to Colorado Springs because everything is here. But the beauty of that is you can bounce around. You can make lateral moves to different companies without uprooting your lifestyle. So you can own a home. You can have a family. You can uh, you know, move forward with businesses or on-site relationships with somebody else um, without having to uproot everything. And you can make lateral moves and even diagonal moves, you know, take a promotion at another position at another company that's actually just down the street. It's not that big of a deal. And it's still a global reaching small business. You still get to make a huge impact with a lot of value. And all you're doing is changing your commute by a couple miles. That's super interesting that you have all of these different NGBs in this one singular area. And for those of you who don't live in Colorado Springs, driving down the street, you wouldn't think it. I mean, you see some of the buildings off of the highway, but it's really flying under the radar for a lot of everyday people's lives um, that, you know, it's such a, a hub for that sports management. But speaking towards, you mentioned that, you know, you work a lot with uh, international bodies and things like that. And obviously for event planning, you have to work with different cities, states, uh, different companies. Are there certain tools you use or certain challenges that you face as far as communication between all of those different organizations, both, you know, nationally and abroad? Absolutely. The, um, there is an international um, relations piece to almost all the NGBs that exist. Almost all NGBs have some sort of international relations um, position or somebody who helps with that international relations. Building that social capital, the political capital on a global scale is super important. So for us, uh, we are kind of cheating. I love it. Um, I speak French. I've spoke French since college. And almost all the Federation languages are French, which is super easy. So the Senegalese Federation will send us correspondence in French, which is awesome. And we send it back immediately in French. So yes, we're cheating, but tons of other NGBs have different models, whether they use uh, translators, whether they use, um, there's an Olympic committee sector that's specifically designed for government relations. And you can email them and there's a, a group of employees that work for the Olympic Committee headquarters that specialize in international relations. They'll help you with visas and they'll help you with, um, you know, some of the more difficult travel questions that maybe if the Italian team is coming in, but they have taken a couple trips to uh, Iran or Saudi Arabia or the, U uh, the UAE, uh, maybe their passports would get flagged. And so we need a government relations sector that helps us man uh, maneuver 
the visa protocols and the ESTAs and things like that to get these people into our country. So that's a huge tool that we use. Um, a lot of the employees that we hire are younger. They're young professionals. They speak multiple languages. They really are the best of the best because Olympic sports is global. Everybody from around the country. We opened a job board. We just closed one actually a month ago. And we had 200 applicants from all over the country. And they are the best of the best. So you're talking people in their realms who are graduating from Ivy League schools, who own their own businesses, who speak six, seven languages, you know, are wanting to move to Colorado Springs and work for these federations. It's amazing. So that brings up an interesting thought, just because you have all of these people coming from around the world applying for these uh, governing bodies. Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe not only in USA fencing, but across the whole board, just the different company cultures, so to speak, just because if you think about it, it must be super interesting having people from different parts of the world working together you know, for this type of sport. Absolutely. Probably the biggest piece for anybody who is applying for the NGB, the company cultures tend to be very much resilience-based. As a small business with a global reach, there is tons and tons and tons of work to do. A lot of what we look for in new applicants, a lot of what we are, maybe not just USA Fencing, but looking for in terms of people who last long are people who have an ability to finesse with a cool head, but they have a really, really, really strong back, able to take tons of tasks, being pulled in tons of different directions, and being able to do that with uh, almost the movement of poetry, if you will. Like they have to be able to do it so nobody knows how how much work you're actually doing, which is amazing because the people who are produced from this, you'll be able to see, you know, 30 year old CEOs who are running global federations. Uh, just people who've been involved for so long, they are capable of learning finance. They're capable of learning major gifting, of development, of uh, event planning, of sports management or uh, sports performance in terms of like athlete health and nutrition and training camps and programs and housing. You know, you're managing flights and hotels and negotiating contracts. A huge part of my uh, job is negotiating with cities. So I'll fly to cities and sit down at a table with, you know, people like the mayor and the sports commission president and directors of sales and hoteliers. You know, a lot of hotel Hiltons and Marriott's and IHG pro, uh, properties are franchises. They're owned by third parties. And so these people are sharks in their industry wanting the best deal and you, as a young and middle 20-year-old, are in the table with all of that happening. And you got to come to play. You got to bring your A game. You got to be willing to negotiate. You have to be able to finesse all of these relationships. And so that global reach creates so many multifaceted skills and assets that you can then put in your tool belt. Uh, that's really what we look for. People who can learn super fast. People who have a super strong back who are not going to complain if you know they've got... 250 emails last night and they're able to knock that out and work another four hours and, you know, get a call in the middle of the night because it's a different time zone in uh, China and they have to use, you know, a VPN to call you and now is the only time they can call you. And so you have to work through the embassy issues. You know, it's, it's tons and tons of curveballs. So really you just end up playing dodgeball real well. <laughs> it's pretty cool. For lack of a, a better way to put it, you know, being a national event manager, it sounds pretty awesome. You know, you get to travel a lot. You get to see these high-profile athletes. You have a very fast-paced, you know, exciting work environment. What is some other advice besides resiliency that you would give to people who want to move into that space? Be wrong as often as you can. <laughs> There's no time for ego. There's no time for playing the the dance of the devil when you're trying to figure out whose fault it was, the uh, who's to blame, where the ego stands. Somebody's not willing to admit that 
uh, it was their fault, they dropped the ball, or you know they just have too much on their plate, they're not willing to ask for help. So be as wrong as humanly possible, as much as possible. Literally be wrong all the time. The faster you are wrong, the faster you can up communication. Even in, an, in a meeting sometimes, I will admit I am wrong. Even if it's not my fault, I had nothing to do with it. Because then you move on, right? If I say, all right, you know what? It was my fault. I totally dropped the ball. No big deal. How do we fix it? That took three seconds. As opposed to the back and forth conversations of, no, it was your fault. No, I needed it this time. No, this email was sent. Look, it's post-dated. That's, there's no time for that. There's too much work for that. There's too much communication. And so, no, a lot of the time, we're not pushing these high, uh, high communicative environments, mostly because we're all traveling. So it's not like you can build this a primordial company culture that thrives on intense communication because sometimes you're in a hotel room sometimes you're in an airport lounge sometimes you're you know on a in a rental car in the middle of Turin Poland working off of an international Wi-Fi hotspot like communication sometimes is not an option <laughs> but admitting you're wrong and getting it over with and just taking the hit pulling your ego out of it allows everybody to say all right no problem let's do the next thing all right no problem let's do the next thing Yes, this is an issue. How do we fix it? What's plan A, B, C? Because on a global scale, they don't really care. You know, if we're putting on an international event, these other federations, they don't care. All they see is the final product. And they want the final product to be so efficient. There may only be two people, three people on your team. So why are you bickering? Just get it over with. Put the ego away. Be wrong all the time. Admit you're wrong, even if it's not your fault. And then move forward. I think it's an important lesson for young professionals in general to learn because coming out of college, I know this for a fact because that's how I am. We like to think that we're always right. We have something to prove. We don't want to admit that we're wrong because we feel like that will be more detrimental than it is helpful. Like you've seen in the NGB industry and sports management, you need that to move forward. Like you said, get past the ego and have some humility, even if it's not your fault. And that's something that I'm learning too. So I think it's it's global across all industries. It is. And I can put uh, add some value into that if you'll allow me. I think the more often I have experienced admitting I'm wrong and taking the heat for it, the more my eyes have been opened that not a lot of people do that. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter what generation they're from. It doesn't matter what position they are. I've been in front of presidents and executive directors who are not willing to admit they're wrong because they still feel like they have to prove something. And so as a life hack, as a career millennial hack, sometimes admitting you're wrong and putting your ego away first, the first person in the room to put your ego away Sometimes you're going to be the only one. And sometimes that means you're going to be the most respected in the entire room. You can be 21 years old and admit you're wrong and be the first person to step forward into solution making. And you might be the only one in there. You'll have presidents looking at you. You'll have executive directors looking at you, understanding how you have learned this skill, this humility skill before any of them have. So it's not like it's something you have to grow into. If you do it, sometimes you're going to be the only one doing it. And I think that's a very powerful tool. It's very disarming when you're the first one to kind of start that conversation in a room. And like you said, if you're sitting around a table with you know a bunch of C-levels and executives, it kind of makes them look at themselves and be like, oh, man, maybe you know we, we should calm down here and, and start <laughs> right. moving on with how are we going to fix the problem. Connor, you're the national events manager. So I imagine that means there's a lot of collaboration in your job, but there's also leadership. So could you tell us a little bit more about the collaboration that you do directly with your team and, and the leadership that you've you found yourself in? Yep, absolutely. So with our team specifically, um, in the office, the salaried employees who work for the Federation, we have different job duties, but staying on the same page is paramount. So we do weekly huddles. We call it a national event huddle. Um, it's just a five minute get together. What are you working on? And it's, uh, 
uh, really just once a week. And it's, do you need help? Where do you need help? How can I help? Or where are your pain points? What exactly is happening this week? And then we're good to go. And then we all just move forward in our own autonomous, uh, our own autonomous professional careers. The reason behind that is too many meetings stagnates time. It cuts focus. You know, if there's, I really don't like meetings unless there's a decision being made. If it's a brainstorming meeting, do it over email, you know, create an online collaboration room on Microsoft SharePoint, whatever you want to do, unless a decision's being made, I don't really like meetings. And so the five minute huddle is get on the same page. What do you need? What's hurting? What hurt from last week that you're still recovering from? And then you move forward. You have a week and a weekend to work forward uh, for the next method or the next methodical task. In terms of the team that I manage on site, so that's in the Federation. We are separated by I manage our national events. Uh, my supervisor manages the international events. So we host a series of world level tournaments on domestic soil. So he manages those. And then I have a coordinator who reports to me and she manages um, flights and hotel contracting. So she really helps me make the the puzzle piece of 150 officials in one hotel and who's flying in and when they're flying out this tournament next week, actually we have overlap. So there's going to be half the people coming in and then the middle of the tournament, half of them are leaving and which hotel room gets booked with these two people and they're all sharing rooms and who's leaving at what point in time. <laughs> it is an unbelievable program to solve. Yeah. We got to figure out a better way to do that. Cause it's, it just takes so much mind power. So she does that in terms of on site per tournament. Uh, I'll manage about 120 to 150 uh, contract tournament employees, so they're contract labor, 1099 contractors who are paid at an honorarium per diem rate, and so they all report to me. They have team leads that report to me, um, but I make sure everybody gets paid. I make sure their hotels are good, their flights are good. On-site operations is seamless, so I will be on-site for every event managing anything there. And then this summer event's our biggest one. That'll be about 250 employees. So managing that amount of people all on one high-octane tournament tends to be a lot more listening than it is talking. Directing and being um, directive doesn't work as often because some of these people are experts in their field. I'm not an expert in their field. Put the ego away, I'm not gonna tell them how to do their job, but I do need advice on how best to make their job easier. That's the goal. And so initially keeping them all on the same page and at least letting them hear my voice. So obviously we're not putting them all on a conference call, that sounds ridiculous. (laughs) But via email, electronic voice counts. We send out a touch base email. It's called an official's blast. It's basically, here's the city you're going to. You already have your flight. Here's the hotel. Here's a list of restaurants and bars that you can go to. This is the schedule for the event. This is what time we're opening every morning. And basically just a deliverable. We call it a deliverable. It's a technical packet. Initially gets sent out. Everybody knows what to do. They can fall back to that. And then there's a series of smaller emails uh, prior to it. So if they are part of our move-in crew, It's a very, very detailed list of here's when the forklifts get here. Here is when stuff is getting dropped. Here's when the electricians get here. Here's when the internet gets here. You guys are on the same page. I will manage all of this, but you can't do your jobs effectively unless you are aware of the bigger piece, the below the iceberg water. You know, even if you have nothing to do with the electrical, you knowing about it means that you can help solve some of the small questions, right? That sphere of influence is more powerful. Post-event, it's always a thank you. It's a post-event survey like, hey, what do we do? And then I'll make sure to respond to some of those. I can't respond to all of them because I just don't have enough time. And responding to that, that post-event follow-up is super powerful as well. Um, And so that kind of holistic one, two, three, and the third being the conclusion of the event makes almost every tournament very, very easy to manage. We can run eight a year without much fluke. Sounds like a lot of what your job is, is communication and logistics. It is, big time. (laughs) And coffee. 
<laughs> Tons of coffee. That sounds like the problem solving that you have is a lot of headaches. It so. actually is a good amount of fun. It's um, I'm not naturally a problem solver as a kid. I didn't love Rubik's cubes or anything like that. But each problem you solve in a situation like this makes a direct impact. So it's almost like every small thing you're doing provides value, and that's what we all want, right? A position that can provide value. So it's almost like you know, give me a give me a big problem. We've had tons of problems. We've had fires and tornadoes and trucks roll over and all of that is moved forward because every small step forward provides value and that's super cool i love that so with so many moving pieces that have to come together with this event um, or with all the events that you plan uh, what kind of mentality or mindset do you have to have when things like that do go wrong well it tends to change from time to time (laughs) um being at the top end of a management tree on tournament Really, the most important piece is having a a level head, being cool as a cucumber, if you will. I mean, not jumping to conclusions and making sure you have all the information first. That is absolutely key because when the timer is ticking, if you have exactly two hours to solve a problem, it's less important that you throw out a solution quickly than it is taking the extra five to 10 to 30 minutes, gathering all the information and submitting the perfect solution that finesses its way out of all obstacles so take that extra time to gather information and then send it forward that's really the best piece the best mentality to have be cool-headed be level-headed and move forward with a well-thought-out approach as opposed to a shotgun blast that you just pulled from the hip connor as you progress through college and you progress through your career now do you have mentors that you turn to that you learn from big time i love mentorship a lot of mentors i got in college helped me get out of college and helped me get my career started and now they've become professional contacts some of them personal contacts i like a lot of them but i learned from them really the basics like the stuff that you need in order to move into the workplace things like your resume your cover letter what does a positive reference sheet look like is it okay to say these things in an interview i vividly remember the conversation i had with a mentor at the rec center colorado state when i called him and said hey they put me on the spot and asked me what my salary was, and I just spit out a number. And I was even thinking, I don't even know what number I spit out. And he was like, it's all right. It's a learning moment. It's no big deal. Think of that before the interview about exactly like prep for those questions and then move forward. So that kind of mentorship was amazing. I think one of the most powerful pieces of mentorship I learned that actually came from a little bit of a pain point um, was when I was doing... Uh, multi-level marketing out of college in order to pay up my student loans and it succeeded it was awesome i worked uh tons of hours and you know did tons of things that i learned tons of things i read lots of books i traveled places and that in turn helped me pay off my student loans in full so i am debt free in terms of loans which is awesome and i've moved on from that but the mentor i had there actually came at a pain point when i wanted to move on and when i wanted to move away from this sector this industry and he wasn't on board with it and so we started to clash i started to find things that were wrong with him which was a personal fault of mine so i didn't agree with his political points of view and all of these other things that should not have been involved in a mentor i then found and it ended up being sour afterwards and so with that said i ended up taking some of his advice and some of his teachings that really helped change my life helped shape my financial goals and i ended up not liking them i ended up hating them right because i I used that left-sided rational cortex thought of what I had learned, and I let the limbic system get in the way. I let my emotions direct the things that I learned. And so that was a super bad thing. 
And really what ended up happening, I figured out quite a long time after, I didn't give him the appropriate respect and the appropriate cell of reality that he should have existed in, right? Like every mentor exists in a window, in a space, in a cell. They can't give you advice on anything that's outside their reality, right? They can't give you advice on anything that they don't know. And that's not their business. That's not their their purpose. And so as a mentee, expecting them to be the all-knowing deity is a bad thing. That's disrespectful. And so I trusted him so much that I was like, look, anything you tell me, I'm going to take. And, like, and that was that's a bad thing. Not just for me, but for him. You can't put a mentor on that kind of pedestal because then you just set yourself up for failure. It's very respectful to find a mentor, number one, First, figure out what their reality is. What do they know? Where they come from? What do they grow up doing? And give them the respect of their knowledge base that you can then dip into. But don't hit them with a, a left ball curve and some beelined idea and advice and expect them to give you the perfect advice you want. Have a different mentor. Have a mentor who is specifically a personal life. You know, if you have a professional mentor, don't bring in your personal problems to that. That's not their goal. That's not their role. And so having mentors at a different facet of your life is super important. So after that negative experience, I now have tons of mentors. I have probably 30 to 40 mentors that I can call right now at very specific points in my life who offer me very specific things. Number one, who I email specifically for workplace trouble. Uh, his name's Scott Winters. He's awesome. Cool dude. He actually hosted tons of our trainings. Um, and I just finished a leadership program at the Olympic Committee. Uh, it was a year-long program, amazing. He hosted two sessions, and he's such a cool dude, such a smart guy. He runs ultras. He's you know in his late fifties, such an awesome guy. I email him specifically about workplace trouble because that's where our relationship was molded around. Is I asked him for initial advice on this. Sure, he can give me advice somewhere else, maybe advice on something else because he's older, he's experienced, he's wise. But it's disrespectful for me to overutilize him and take advantage of him. So I have him for that. And then I have others for other things. Personal life, I have mentors for relationships, for uh, you know my relationship with my parents as they just moved into retirement and I'm trying to move up in a career. You know, I have some people and mentors who I can talk to who can give me advice in their own scope of reality. Yeah, and I can definitely appreciate that because everyone niches down into different areas. Your professional mentor might not align with your personal life. And so it doesn't make sense to have them giving you advice there. But I think if you're able to find a mentor that can encompass the main areas of your life, that's great. But like you talked about, it's best to find multiple different mentors that can give you specific advice for certain areas. I agree hundred percent. And that also helps you become a more powerful mentor yourself, making sure that you stay within the scope of the reality that the mentee needs, as opposed to letting them take advantage of you. And I think that makes finding a mentor so much less intimidating because uh, I think a lot of people, they go into it hearing about mentorship and that sort of thing thinking I need a, it's a one and done situation. I need to find some all knowing, all all powerful person who can guide me through life. But it's a lot easier when you can narrow your focus and say, hey, this person really has, you know, their, you know, their marriage together. So I want to talk to them about relationships or this person is who I want to be in my career. And I'm going to take them, um, you know, ask them questions about that area. So I think it's a really good viewpoint to have to make sure you're not psyching yourself out when you're looking for someone to help you along the way. No, I agree. And honestly, the biggest piece for me is it humbles you, right? It humbles us. And specifically, if something that you have nothing, uh, no prior knowledge into, 
I mean, finding a mentor is absolutely key. For me, I guess, for example, I started an investment company in January and it's real estate investment and I didn't know anything about real estate investment. And I could not have done it without the two mentors I had that almost entirely held my hand. They literally walked with me every step of the way. Now they kind of like let it release and I can still talk to them about questions and problems. They will never be anything more to me than that mentor than that lifestyle, right? And you mentioned that you have a lot of people that you go to to ask advice. When you reached out to these people or when they became your mentors, was it more of a, a natural, gradual process or was there a hard line where you're like, hey, can you be my mentor in this area? It was both. So there was a couple impressions first, second, maybe a third impression or some conversation where we would kind of gauge each other and learn what this person's good at, what I'm good at, what I'm interested in, what they're interested in. And then it had to be a purposeful ask. And so the mentors I have now, I was totally comfortable saying, hi, Scott, could you act as my mentor for uh, things that I'm struggling with at work? I think you have great insight. I would really appreciate it. Maybe I can email you once a month and ask you a couple questions, touch base with you if that's cool with you. Yes, sure. It's okay with me, right? Get their permission and then put it in my calendar. I put a year's worth of emails in my calendar and every time it hits, I shoot them an email and say, hey, this is what's going on. Here's a, how's it going? It's everything's great. Or if something comes up that I need immediate assistance, I'm happy to email it. And that intentionality part is really interesting because you hear yeah. a lot of you know mentor mentee relationships is something that's a little bit more informal. Mm-hmm. But I really like that idea of having that intentionality there and that purpose. Like I'm going to value their time by saying I'm going to reach out to them once a month or once a quarter. Anything like that just shows that I'm serious about what you have to offer me as far as knowledge or experience. Yep, I agree 100%. So transitioning more into our outro questions, recommend one resource that's helpful for you in everyday life. I would say my schedule. Um, I have learned to be very purposeful with my schedule and time. Um, I will schedule activities like volleyball or dodgeball or gym time. um, And I make sure to utilize the notes on there. So my schedule actually becomes kind of my advisor and my, uh, it's the best way to put it, my assistant. Inside each calendar update, there is notes on what I want to talk to people. In every meeting, there's a lengthy notes section so that when that meeting comes, I don't have to panic or touch base on anything or go back to notes from previous emails and waste a couple minutes. So every piece of my calendar is excessively detailed, almost to the point where I like can't read things. And so like sometimes I get double and triple things on there. But for me, it doesn't matter looking at it as a whole because the moment I like zoom in, I know exactly what's going on when it's going on. And especially like coffee meetings or mentor meetings, I'll write exactly what I want to ask them so that I just show up and I can be as effective as humanly possible. And what is one book that you recommend? The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. I love that book. It's a little bit more of a uh, almost a dichotomy between prose and po- poetry, but he talks about some of the most important pieces in his life and things that helped him build his ethical character, his moral code. Uh, And it really helped me shape my moral code. I think that's been the most effective piece for me that's helped me move forward is finding a set of things that I agree with, things that I believe in, and moving forward very intentionally with that. And that really helped shape some of the most powerful ones I have. Well, Connor, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. (laughs) Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. This is fun. Um, Share one parting piece of guidance, the best way to connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Thrive in the silence. I think far more often listening and looking and hearing people gets your point across and builds relationships far better than talking and having your opinion heard. Be wrong and talk less. And best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Well, thanks again for being here. Thanks. I appreciate you guys. This is John Mark. And this is Brent. Signing off. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Attitude Check. It was such a pleasure to have Connor Shane on this episode. He had a lot of wisdom. It was a very dense conversation, but we got a lot out of it. And John Marker, I think my favorite part was a concept that was actually really simple. It's just when he said, think for yourself. And I think that strikes home with so many people in this day and age with so many different distractions and influences that you have on your thought process and what your actions are further on in your career and life. And I think thinking for yourself is definitely important when you go down the path of choosing a career and choosing what you value because you have things like social media telling you what to do, your parents telling you what to do, friends, your work, society and culture in general. And I think being able to just sit down as a young adult and really decide what do I want for myself? What do I picture and envision my life to look like? I think that's hugely valuable and will save people a lot of grief and heartache in the long run and really focus their path so they don't have to face as many twists and turns and struggles. Be sure to tap that subscribe button on your favorite podcast hosting platform, because let's face it, you know you want to. And check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for a new episode of Attitude Check. And be sure to check us out on social media. Follow us on Facebook for more updates on what we're doing. And follow us on Instagram to see some different forms of content that we're putting out there. And thank you so much to our listeners that share our episodes on social media. We really appreciate it. You can get in contact with us on Facebook or Instagram, or you can email us at attitudecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.